Uh, we're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. I'm sorry to say that my family's not with us uh, today. My, my wife and daughters are sick. Apparently, staying with 20 family members in the same household does that to you uh, over Thanksgiving. Uh, but uh, we're thankful it looks like we're on the end of that, and I'm grateful to be here today uh, to speak on 1 Peter chapter 2. I think a really powerful and incredibly good passage. Now, I think uh, the last time uh, you were congregated together, you were looking at a passage from the book of Isaiah. And what I'd like to do, because this passage that we're dealing, detailing today in 1 Peter chapter 2, is actually the most explicit connection to Isaiah 53 and all of the New Testament. In other words, there are other passages in the New Testament that refer to Isaiah 53, that great Old Testament passage predicting the coming and suffering of our Lord. But none explicitly detail it to the degree that this passage does. So what I plan to do this, this afternoon is to first read once more for us Isaiah 52 and 53, because the end of 52 is a part of uh, that prophecy. And then having done that, then we'll turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read the first couple of verses. And I think what you're going to see, having just read Isaiah 53, you'll come back to uh, 1 Peter 2 and say, yeah, yeah. Clearly, 1 Peter 2 is a uh, detailed analysis of Isaiah 53. So I'm starting here in Isaiah 52 verse 13. You're welcome to join me there or simply listen. And here's what God's word says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were, as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond even human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form. Or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Now we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at verses 21 and following. For to this you have been called. We're going to have to recall that earlier he has just talked about suffering unjustly. And so he says, for to suffer unjustly, leading to glory, you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer before we open up this passage. Father, even just reading that passage, we are reminded of the incredible work of our Savior Jesus on our behalf. He took a punishment he did not deserve because he wanted to see us gain a salvation we did not deserve. And so, Father, we celebrate this morning, and yet, even in the midst of passage like this, considering the suffering of, of our Savior, we note that also it tells us that He walked that path because He was leaving us an example. So help us today 
to consider that example and to live faithfully with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, and last time we were together and I had the opportunity to preach, I preached from verses 18 through 21. And I did that purposefully because I think 21 is the conclusion from 18 to 21, but I also think it's the transition into this next period. You'll recall in verse 18, he was talking about slaves and masters, about being subservient to an unjust master, and how unfair that would be, and yet it very well may be what God called some of his saints to. We made analogy then that it very well may be that God allows us to endure unjust suffering. And what do we do if we find find ourselves in such a situation? We talked about that the last time. We won't detail that again. But this verse 21 is a transitional verse because it gives us a conclusion to that last section, and yet it introduces us into this explicit consideration of Isaiah 53 in reference to Jesus' suffering. And you'll recall the last time we talked about verse 21 Jesus, or Peter's telling us that Jesus left us an example that ought to be followed. And if you recall last time, I opened with the illustration of, of, uh, of, of trying to learn to draw by means of watching YouTube. And I, I think it's quite, quite an interesting thing. I, I am one of those types of people who do not generally look at instruction books. Anybody else follow me in, in that? All right. So I remember just recently I got something and my wife said, did you read the directions? And I just started laughing. It's, I mean, I thought we had been married longer than that. Uh, she, she, she knew that I didn't read the directions. But I did say, I did not read the directions. But you know what I did? I looked up a YouTube video. Now, I don't know. Maybe you're different than me. Maybe, maybe you, you like the instruction booklets. But I know if you've ever been to Ikea, you don't. You ever open one of those instruction booklets and you think the instruction booklet's bigger than the desk I bought? How is this even possible? I don't know, but that's about what happens with those Ikea booklets. But you know what I do when I get those Ikea booklets? I throw it in the trash. And you know what I do? I go to YouTube because I want to see some visible depiction of how this is supposed to work out. I want something more tangible, something to grab onto. I think what Peter provides for us here is a very tangible expression of what living in suffering looks like. How do we follow the example of Christ? In fact, this passage, you'll recall that Peter uses really two analogies, even in verse 21, to help us to think about what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, Because notice verse 21 again. He says, For to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That word example, I recall, I mentioned last time, is the Greek word that would be used of a child learning his letters. And you've seen this. You've you've seen a kindergarten document trying to teach people how to write letters. And they've got these dotted figures. So then you, you learn to write the letter A and you just follow the dotted figures. And in the same way, Jesus has left for us an example of how we should suffer. What are you going to do when you get into a situation in which you are experiencing unjust suffering? Here's what Peter says. Jesus left you an example. And then notice he goes on. He says, not only did he leave us an example, but he left us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. 
Uh, this analogy of following in the footsteps is, is deeply embedded into my mind. A number of years ago, I went to a camp. It was a, it was a winter camp. And praise the Lord, there was snow at this winter camp. You ever been to a winter camp without snow? It's, it's a horrible situation. So we go, and, and there's not only snow, but there's like three feet of snow, and it's fresh powdered snow. And uh, the guy who's leading the camp said, hey, why don't you follow me around? I want to I wanna show, show you the place. Well, that sounded great, except that, like I told you, there's about three feet of snow out there. So I'm glad he went first, because he's stepping like this, going into, you know, and, and then I... Thankfully, not having the big boots and everything that he did, was able to just step right into his footprints, right? And I just followed right along and didn't get lost, thankfully, and made it exactly where he wanted me to see. But that's, visual, that's, that's just burned into my mind, the idea of following those footprints. And in the same way, Jesus says, or Peter says, that Jesus left for us a pattern of footprints so that when we go through suffering... We have something to follow. So if that's what he's done, then we need to ask the question, what exactly does that pattern look like? What does it mean? How, how can I walk through suffering and when I do so, mimic my Savior Jesus? How can I do that? Well, I think the passage tells us a couple of things about Jesus' suffering. And the first is that Jesus suffered sinlessly. Jesus suffered sinlessly. Notice verse 22, it says, he committed no sin. This is one of the most explicit statements of the sinlessness of Jesus that is given to us in all of Scripture. Now, there are a number of other passages that tell us that Jesus was, in fact, sinless. But I think we've got to take this one quite seriously. Jesus truly took on humanity. He took on human flesh. He was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. And you say, well, why, what's significant about that? Well, the significance is that Jesus came to leave us an example because he believed that we could follow that example. Now, let's not fall into either one of two traps. The one trap would be to say, well, then Christians can become sinless. I think First John actually tells us that that's probably going to be outside of our reach within this lifetime. The second is then to say, well, if we're not going to be sinless, then, you know, we're just going to be sinners. And that's just going to be it. We're just going to continue to sin. But I think Scripture calls us to a mediated position there. To say, no, no temptation has taken us, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful so that with it he provides a way of escape. And yet... I know the weakness of this flesh is probably going to fail at some point. So I'm going to need God's forgiveness. He provides an example for us, though, because he has given to us through the Holy Spirit power to actually fulfill it. We should be able to live without sin. He did not sin. You know, it's interesting then that this passage goes on to say, and, and I find this interesting because the next three statements of his sinlessness all have to do with his tongue. Isn't that interesting? It all has to do with what he says. Why is that? I think there are a couple of reasons, and they come from passages of Scripture that, that we find in the Scripture itself. James chapter 3 says this, We all stumble in many ways. 
And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, then he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. You know what James is saying there? He's saying the hardest thing to control in all the world. Remember, he uses these analogies. He says, we've, we've conquered all kinds of beasts. We can ride them. We can, we can tame them. But there's something that is untamable among mankind. It is that little evil member that is caught on fire by hell itself. It's called the tongue. And oh, friends, I know that you know what I'm talking about. It is a problematic member that we've all experienced. But why is it such a problematic element? Why do we have such a difficulty bringing it under control? And this is, I think, the second reason that the three things that Peter demonstrates Jesus' sinlessness concerning his speech, I think this is the other reason for it. It's because when we think of the mouth, what comes out of the mouth has been in the heart. Here's what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The fuller passage there given Luke, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil things stored in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You ever heard somebody say, I know I said that, but I didn't mean it. I kind of get what you're saying, but if you said it, it was in there, right? And what the scripture text is telling us is that the mouth is the gateway to the heart. It is what reveals what's deeply embedded in there. And here's the fact about Jesus that Peter is emphasizing for us. Jesus never sinned, ever. Not even in one little stray word. And again, I think... If we understand what he's saying, he's saying then he's leaving us an example that we can follow. That again, we should hold ourselves up to the standard of perfection because we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the example of Jesus. So the three elements then in which Jesus' sinlessness of speech come about are the following three. The first one is this one, Jesus did not deceive. You'll notice verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And you might ask the question, well, why does it refer to deceit in his mouth? We wouldn't expect Jesus to be deceiving people. But I think there are two reasons for this. The first comes actually from Isaiah 53. If you remember, as I read that passage, one of the statements that's prophesied about Jesus is that he would have no deceit in his mouth. Here's the passage. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter is displaying for us that he's quoting from Isaiah 53. He's going to do it quite a bit in this passage. But he's also saying, look, Jesus did not sin with his mouth. He did not deceive. Now, I think the second reason that he references this is because, remember, he's leaving us an example. And he's leaving an example to people who are going through persecution. If you can recall, way back when I began this series, some four months or so ago, uh, we talked about the difficulty that Peter's readers were under because they were living under the Roman Empire in which they would be asked whether they swore fealty. And not just 
uh, do you follow the emperor, but do, is, is the emperor Lord? And I think that there were times, we certainly see it in the, in the annals of church history, that there have been times where people said, you know, I could say yes to that, but then in my heart not really believe that. And I think what Peter is warning them about is that the Christian is not one who gets himself out of suffering by means of deceit. Probably their honesty is what's led them to suffering. And so is there a temptation to fudge just a little bit so that they could escape it? I think so. And so Peter is telling them that Jesus suffered. He never deceived and we should not deceive either. This is the example he's left us. There's a second thing he did. He did not revile in return. In fact, the two things mentioned in verse 23 are during his suffering. So when he was reviled or when he was spoken evil against, he did not revile in return. Do you realize how anti-normal that is? Let me put you in a, in a situation. You're driving. Somebody else is driving. They swerve into your lane or what, whatever happens. And then all of a sudden you come to the stop sign. They roll down their window and they say, you idiot. What's your natural response? <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, is that the natural response? Probably not. Your natural response is, well, I know what you are because I'm not the idiot here, right? And, and we want to, I think this is just natural to humanity that when someone speaks evil of me, I'm going to get them back. I mean, and, and you think of it in reference to Jesus. He could have got people back, right? He knew everyone's little dirty secrets. I mean, he, he could have devastated any opponent that stood against him. But when he was reviled, he did not revile because he had a higher purpose. He had a higher purpose. And so, I mean, honestly, as a believer, somebody calls you an idiot, even in traffic, I think you should say, you know what, I've got a higher purpose in life than to call some guy an idiot or some lady or uh, whatever the case may be. We've got a higher purpose in life. That, that isn't why God put us here. And Jesus, even in the midst of the most revile, I mean, He's never sinned, and yet he's spoken evil against him. What does he do? He doesn't revile. Instead, he speaks gracious words. Notice a third thing that Jesus does not do. Jesus did not threaten. Jesus did not threaten. This might be, again, another odd sort of thing, but... You know, sometimes whenever we are evil spoken against or whenever we are suffering, sometimes we realize we might have some power over this person. And so we threaten them. Maybe it could be threatening them with eternal damnation. Maybe it could be threatening them with something temporal. It doesn't matter. But you see, Jesus did not threaten even when he suffered. And you think of Jesus' example Jesus had the threats, right? I mean, if I think I've got power over somebody, think about Jesus. And do you remember that, that situation in which they're in the garden? 
and this army comes against Jesus. And the disciples, I think they're, they're afraid. What's going to happen here? And they, they step forward, and then Peter, in his great boldness and total lack of skill with the sword, um, lashes out and only cuts off an ear. And Jesus turns to Peter. Now, notice he does not say this to the Roman crowd. He says this to Peter. And <laughs> he says, Peter... Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? By the way, Jesus didn't even need those angels, did he? One day he's going to speak a word and all of his enemies will be destroyed. And yet he reminds Peter, listen, I have the power. We like singing that song. He could have called 10,000 angels. And it's true. Actually, 12 legions of angels is... Uh, 69,600, but that just doesn't go very well in the song. (laughs) But he didn't even need one, did he? Jesus could have spoken and his enemies could have been decimated. He could have threatened in a way that even we cannot threaten, but he did not do that. Instead, he suffered silently as a lamb because he was convinced this was his father's will. And again, this is exactly what Isaiah 53 says of him. So if we are going to suffer like Jesus, if we're going to follow his footsteps, then what do we do? First, we suffer sinlessly. We do not suffer because we sin. In fact, we probably will suffer because we will not sin. Second thing, if Jesus suffered sinlessly, he also suffered purposefully. He suffered purposefully. Look at the passage again. It says this in verse 24. Having just said that he committed no sin, he wasn't deceitful in his mouth. He was, when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But here's what he does in ver- the end of verse 23. But here's what Christ did. Here's what Jesus did when he suffered. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself, or he committed himself. This language is interesting. It's the language that's used in reference to Jesus' betrayal, that he was handed over by Judas to the Romans, so that now the Romans had power to do with Jesus whatever they wished. In the book of Acts, the word is used of the church handing over to the very Spirit of God these missionaries. It says that they entrusted the missionaries to the Spirit's care. In other words, he had to take care of them. He was now responsible for them. They had passed off that responsibility. And do you know what Jesus says? That when he suffers, he says, when I suffer, I entrust him who judges justly. He hands himself over to the Father, to his care. Why is it that Jesus the Son hands his life over to the Father? I think there are two reasons. First, it's because he knows that his Father is sovereign. His Father is in control. His Father has made the plan, and he, his role is to fulfill it. 
Isaiah 53, has this little phrase in it that is so meaningful. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and for him to suffer. Again, we've talked about this on a number of occasions, and uh, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I'm just working through what Peter keeps telling us. And one of the things he tells us is that God's will may be that we suffer. God's will for Jesus, his most beloved son, was that he would suffer. That was his will for him. And if Jesus then paved the pathway, made the footsteps, do you begin to see why Paul says, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is the example. This is the pattern. This is the footsteps that Jesus has left us. So what do we do when God is sovereign and he allows our suffering? We entrust our souls to his care. We, in essence, say, not my will, but yours be done. Is this not what Jesus said as he sat in the garden contemplating a future that he would do nearly anything to avoid? Father, let this cup pass from me. Father, I don't want to face that cross. I don't want to face the suffering. I don't want to face your back being turned to me. I don't want this. And yet, Father, not my will, but yours, I entrust myself to you. Do you see, the reason that Jesus is willing and able to entrust his soul to his father is because of the last line, because he is not, he, he does it not just because he knows his father is sovereign, but he does it because he knows his father is good. And I'm convinced there are some here today who he need to hear that again. He gives himself into the hands of his father and says, not my will, but yours, because you are good. And you think, well, where do you get that from this passage? Notice it says he entrusted himself. It could simply say he entrusted himself to his father. But it doesn't because Peter wants to highlight something. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus said, my father is sovereign and he is good and I'm going to entrust my soul to him because at the end of the day, at the end of all time, when everything is settled, justice will prevail. Reminded of when Abraham is standing looking over Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, will not the God of all the earth do right? It's one of my favorite Old Testament passages because the implied answer is absolutely, he will. He will do right. And there are times where you can't see it. There are times where it's almost as though we have blinders on and we say, I don't see the good that you have in this. And maybe, just maybe, the good actually isn't designed for this life anyways. 
Maybe what he's doing is he's storing up coffers for you, these treasures in the life to come. See, Jesus, if we were to suffer like him, if we were to follow his footsteps, he did not sin. He was sinless. He suffered sinlessly. Second, he suffered purposefully. He was following the will of the Father, and he knew that though his Father's will included suffering, that his Father was good, and so he entrusted himself to him. He suffered purposefully. But finally, Jesus suffered redemptively. Jesus suffered redemptively. As we turn to the Christmas season, this is a message we need to hear. Jesus came to die for humanity. Notice the passage. He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly, verse 24. And this is what he did. This is what he suffered because he believed his father. He entrusted himself to his father. So he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is encapsulated summary of all of Isaiah 53. And I think Peter is trying to get us to remember this passage that I read at the beginning. Notice it was our griefs that he carried. It was our sorrows. It was our transgressions for which he was pierced and for which he was crushed. It was our iniquities that were brought on him that then led to our peace. His wounds lead to our healing. We, like sheep, have gone astray, but have now, because of Jesus, returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Isaiah 53, 11 then says this, out of the anguish of his soul. Notice this, this is, this is Jesus, out of the anguish of his soul, did Jesus suffer? He was in anguish of his soul. But out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I think here it's referencing a future recognition of what God is going to do. He will be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted Righteous. That last line, I want us to note, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is what historically has been called the great exchange. He took my sin, and I took his righteousness. We've been talking a lot about unjust suffering. Do you want to know what the most explicit example of unjust suffering that's ever faced this world is? It's what we read about in Isaiah 53. It was Jesus taking your pain on him. Was that just? I mean, in God's justice, yes. But in one sense, that could be viewed as unjust Jesus. Here he is, and he's bearing the sins of others, and yet he does it willingly. Because by bearing our sins. He opens the door for our salvation. We sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. My favorite line in that whole song is this. Behold the man upon the cross, 
my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed? I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought us life. I know that it's finished. You do realize that the nails did not keep Jesus on the cross. It was our sins that kept him there. He wanted to go through with the whole thing so that our slate could be wiped clean and the righteousness of the Son might be written for our account. Our sin on his shoulders, but now his dying breath has brought us life. Notice this passage. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you see, earlier we talked about the fact that Jesus left us an example, and that example was that he lived sinlessly. And you say, well, I can't do that. But notice, Jesus died so that you could do that. He bore your sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were at one time sick unto death, and yet by his wounds we have now been healed. Now this is an odd thing, because we said that we're supposed to follow his example. And the first two are somewhat evident. I'm supposed to follow the example of Jesus in that Jesus lived Sinlessly. Okay, he's given us the power to do that. Second of all, Jesus gave us an example in that we are to live purposefully. We're to entrust our souls to God because we're, we are not our own. We are bought with a price, so we're going to glorify God with our bodies. But when we come to this third point, in which I said that Jesus died for others, or Jesus died for the righteousness that might be granted to others... It doesn't appear initially that we can do that. You see, Jesus died in a theological term. Just hold with me here. They call it vicariously. It just means in the place of someone else. He died in our place. And I can't die for somebody else. But I do believe that that Peter is here saying that we can suffer, just like Jesus did, redemptively. What does that mean? It does not mean that I can die in the place of someone else. But what it does mean is that my suffering may be used by God to bring redemption to somebody else. Do you remember last week or a couple of weeks back when we were talking about the slave with the unjust master? And one of the reasons that Peter gives for them to be subordinate to that unjust master, is that they might see Christ in that person and that their enemy might be redeemed. The one bringing them suffering might actually be transformed by their suffering. I'm convinced convinced that this is a theme of 1 Peter because he says it again in chapter 3. We'll look at that a little bit later. But I would simply say here, Jesus died redemptively, and he's indicating to us that we are to follow in his footsteps. That if we suffer, not because of our own sin, 
but because we are, we are righteous. We're suffering because of righteousness. And if we suffer according to God's will, that is, we are subordinate, we are saying, your will, not mine, then God very well may use our example of suffering to bring others to Christ. And praise be the Lord for that. So, what do we do with this passage? I think there are four things and then we'll be done. First, don't be surprised when you suffer. Again, I think we've got this flavor of Christianity in the Western world that says that suffering's something abnormal, that it shouldn't happen. That if suffering's happening, then there's, then there's something wrong and you should look into it. Listen, when you read Scripture, that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that suffering is something that God's people have gone through forever and should expect that it might come again. So don't be surprised when you suffer. You see the pattern Jesus left. It says, Jesus walked this path. I mean, again, look in verse 21. To this you have been called, what? To suffering so that you might, you might gain reward. To this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his footsteps. Well, what were his footsteps? They were footsteps of suffering. So don't ever be surprised when you suffer. And don't think, what have I done wrong? Now, maybe you should think that because maybe there was something. But if you've determined that there's nothing you're doing in sin, then accept the suffering from the hand of God and entrust your soul to a faithful God. So second, take care that you do not sin in your suffering. I think part of the reason why Peter is addressing these folks this way, uh, these suffering saints, is because when we're suffering, we can begin to get pent up in the heart. And the heart then comes out in the mouth. And Peter says, be very cautious. Be very careful when you're suffering how you use your mouth. May it be the tool of blessing and not of cursing. It's unnatural, but that's the whole thing. We're no longer natural citizens of this age. Third, and this is the hard thing, entrust yourself to God. Today, there are some people who in this room are suffering egregiously. You're suffering very difficult things. And you say, what do I do? You trust the Father. I'm reminded of Paul's powerful words. He says, hey, listen. If he gave us his son, will he not with him give us all things freely? The one who has given us that gift the most expensive gift, the most costly gift one could ever imagine? Can you now doubt him because there's suffering? And can we not believe that even to his most beloved sons and daughters, he may allow suffering because he allowed it for his own son. So he might allow it for ours. So entrust yourself because he is both sovereign. He knows all things. He knows what he's doing. He knows more about what he's doing in your life than you know what he's doing in your life. Remember that. He is sovereign. Oh, but man, he is also good. 
Never forget that. Finally, look for redemptive opportunities in your suffering. So, you're suffering. God's allowed it in your life. Here's my question. Is it possible that God is opening doors of ministry, doors of witness that otherwise would not be opened if you were not engaged in this suffering? And maybe the reward for your suffering will be the harvest of a soul. And oh, may we always say that would be worth it. So entrust your souls to a faithful creator during this life. Father, I thank you that in the midst of suffering, you have not left us alone. You have given to us a pattern, an example to follow. We thank you that Jesus was faithful in his suffering. He suffered sinlessly and we ought to suffer sinlessly. He suffered purposefully, following you, knowing that Your will, not his own. And may we mimic that. And then he suffered redemptively for the sake of others. May we also recognize that you may be using our suffering for the sake of the redemption of others. And may we accept and bow to that will so that you might be further glorified. We praise you, Father, for you deserve the praise. Amen.